Oh, you people are great. Fantastic. Well, listen, you know, life is a journey, is it not? And life can be full of ups and downs and, you know, mountaintop experiences and, and then valleys. But the reality is, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, is that God is with us wherever we go, wherever we are. And I don't know what's happening in your world today, but God does. You might be in a valley today. You might be on a mountaintop. The reality is Jesus is with you, in you, for you, going ahead of time to bless you and to make a way for you in the name of Jesus. Amen. This song is called Love Will Lift Me Up. I I hope you enjoy it. Again, the words will be on the screen. Thank you.
Praise God. We'll take your seats. Thank you. That's the first time I've ever done those songs in, uh, in a congregational setting. They're, they're new songs, so thank you for joining in. It's good to know they're going to work. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, you're very kind, great people. Well, listen, I'm going to share my testimony uh, for a little while now, and then at the end, I'm going to sing a couple more songs and lead you in a little bit of, of worship. But right now, I'm just going to I'm going to head off into my testimony. Is that okay? Brilliant. We've all got a story, ladies and gentlemen. We do. And each day uh, we live, we are unpacking the next layer and the next part of our journey. And sometimes only in hindsight you can look back and see the fingerprints of God through your life. Amen? You know, the, the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 12 and verse 11, it says, They overcame him the devil, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb who has washed our sins away and the word of our testimony. And they love not their life unto death. You've got to be willing to die for this thing, man. And I am. Um, but they overcame him. There's an overcoming uh, spirit. There's an overcoming power, not only in the blood of the lamb, but in the word of your testimony and the word of your story and your journey in your mouth is a very, very powerful thing. Because only you, in the depths of your soul, understand and realize and know the great things that God has done for you. And we can speak our testimony out of that experience, and it carries weight, it carries power, and it carries the presence of God. Can I get an amen? So, hey, we need to be telling our story and maybe your story's not so pretty, but that's okay. Let's tell our story because as we tell our story, we're going to impact the UK and the nations beyond with the great glorious things that God has done in our life. And, and if the only thing that you know is, is that I was lost and now I'm found, tell it and tell it to whoever you meet. I was lost and now I'm found and, and now I know Jesus. Amen. Well, Let's wind back the clock a little back, a bit for, uh, for me, back to the year of 1996, which is probably before some of your kids were born, which is about 18 years ago. Uh, back in 1996, on the 25th of August, 1996, the day before I got, well, the night before I got born again, I remember being in a haze of drug addiction alcohol addiction and I was a messed up young man I was 26 years of age I remember stumbling around the streets trying to find my ex-girlfriend's house and she was a backslidden Christian so I'm trying to find her house I'd been invited to her uh, house uh, 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 for a party now she used to be the PA of Michael Barrymore do you remember him so she used to work for him she was an Aussie girl and she'd come over to specifically work for him look after his you know, uh, different bits and pieces anyway. But I'm stumbling around the street with my drug dealer and with a friend of his. And we eventually found the house of my ex-girlfriend. And uh, we were four hours late for a party this evening. And I remember knocking on the door. And my ex-girlfriend answered the door. And she looked at me. Uh, with that look of uh, disgust, really. And she said, you're late. And I said, I know, but I'm here. And she said, well, come in. She reluctantly invited us three in. We came through the door, and my drug dealer and his friend proceeded to go into their bathroom to shoot up heroin because that's what I was doing at that stage of my life. That's how I was living. And I went through to the lounge room and I tried to get everybody pumped up to party some more. And um, they weren't having any of it because a lot of them were, were Christians, but I didn't know that. So they're kind of looking at me like, like you're looking at me right now. <laughs> like, hmm, okay. No, we don't do that kind of thing. I must have stunk of cigarette and alcohol Jared and Vicky, and, and it was, I must have looked as, 
a sorry sight. But um, what happened next was a commotion broke out in the hallway as the next door neighbor who was at the party had walked in on my drug dealer and his friend proceeding to shoot up in the bathroom. They were walked in on and he dragged them out of the bathroom and I could see through the door into the hallway as he kicked them out of the house. And Lucinda came out of the kitchen and was asking him questions about what was going on and he told her the story. Well, I've never seen her so angry. She came in to the lounge room and she collared me and she dragged me in, uh, into the hallway uh, and then into her bedroom. And I remember Lucinda pushing me up against a wall and she said, Mark Stevens, what on earth are you doing with your life? And why have you invited those men, those people here to my house? Enough is enough. And she said, what are you doing with your life? I, I just remember sliding down the wall, cupping my head in my hands and saying these words. I said, I don't know what I'm doing anymore, Lucinda. I think I need God. And those words just tumbled out of my mouth. No one had ever preached the gospel to me. No one had ever shared the love of Christ. But I was searching, ladies and gentlemen, searching for some kind of meaning through the haze and through the mess of my life. There was this ache on the inside of me that needed to be filled and sorted out. And I'd looked through the highs and lows of life. But I said, I think I need God. I'd grown up in Australia as a, a, little, a little Aussie boy. I, I was born in Tasmania, which is a long swim away. I can tell you it's like 12,000 miles away. And I grew up in a non-Christian home. My dad didn't want anything to do with God. He'd come out of a kind of a Catholic schooling background, had an alcoholic father, and he was one of nine children. He came from a lot of brokenness and a lot of mess. His father sexually abused his sisters, and he went through a lot of turmoil as a young man and couldn't wait to get out of his house and away from the mess that he grew up in. My mother was adopted by Welsh parents who moved out after the Second World War to Tasmania to set up camp there on some of those cheap boat rides, uh, and, and they set people up into housing. So she was adopted, and, and uh, she ha her sister was adopted, my mum's sister had seven children and gave them all away. She wasn't fit to care of them. We ended up adopting one of those, ch uh, those children. My mum and dad did, and she became my sister, Emma. So I have a younger sister, Emma, seven years younger, and I have an older brother, Brett, who's two years older. And our house was a, was a um, you know, generally happy house filled with music, obviously from the Welsh heritage of my mum, and singing was, was a passion of mine from the age of three. I just used to crank up the music and sing ABBA songs. Rock man, give me that kick now, Roman. And uh, absolutely loved that song. I used to record myself on my, my grandfather's little recording unit. And I'd play it back and like, oh, that sounds really good. And I, then I'd record it again. And, uh, and I'd do their head in because I'd probably sing it a million times over. But yeah, the house was always full of lots of people and friends and um, it, was a, it was a very isolated place to grow up, uh, it was Tasmania, but it was a very safe environment in many, many ways. My mum and dad had a very turbulent marriage. Uh, my dad was a womanizer. He would sleep around with, with women and, and it would get back to my mother, but she stayed with him uh, for the sake of bringing up us three kids. Um, she just bit her lip and kind of tried to sail through. The debris that that, that, that caused uh, in their marriage was, was horrible to be around that uh, growing up. Um, I used to watch this show on Australian television. You, you saw it up there. It was a show called Young Talent Time. And it was almost like Australia's version of the Mickey Mouse Club. Do you remember that, mums and dads? Um, but it was a show where it had a host. And the host's name was Johnny Young. And there were 10 kids that used to sing and dance on this show... Every Saturday night, you'd flick it on, 
And there it was at 6 p.m. and it would run for an hour. It was all the hits of the day, singing and dancing and a bit of, a, um, bit of variety in it as well. Beautifully hosted by Johnny Young. It was obviously aimed at kids and it was a very wholesome show. And it was something that I watched and I fell in love with all the, all the girls on it. When I was a, a boy, I was like, oh, she's beautiful. And oh, I want to marry her one day and all that kind of stuff. Um, never did I ever in my wildest dreams think that I would work on that show. By the time I was 12, my brother and I had started a band with a couple of guys who lived up the road from us. Uh, Brett and Jason Shea were, were their names. My brother's was, name was, was Brett, or still is. <laughs> it's early. <laughs> my name's Mark, by the way. Uh, anyway, um, so we started this band when I was about 12, and we called it The Blackouts because we were going to use up so much power that we were going to black the whole world out. That was the aim of the game. I think it still is the aim of the game. <laughs> anyway, we, we did a few little gigs and whatever, and, and we, I got a taste of this rock star stuff, like, well, I'm going to be a rock star. And my, my nan would make us these, these shirts, like pirate shirts with big baggy white sleeves, and we'd get up there and sing, you know, rock songs. It was wonderful. All we knew was with three chords, but that's all you need in rock. Amen. Anyway, I, I started to get some piano lessons, and I, I just love music, but I hated being told what to do. I didn't like that and still don't like it very much. <laughs> and uh, so I got myself a few piano lessons and, and learned the basics, and I started to write a couple of songs. Um, I, I, use, I performed the songs at, in my music class at school in my first year of high school, and this young girl... Uh, in my music class, uh, um, her and myself became good friends. Um, and I tell you that to say that one day I was on my way to my grandmother's house and uh, she met me on the train tracks. And um, we, we had this conversation where she said to me, hey, Mark, there's a talent quest down the road. You should put your song in the talent quest. And I said, yeah, 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 I should do that. So I forgot about my nan and I ran home and I recorded the backing music and I went down that night and I sang my song called Dreams, which made no sense, but uh, it did to me. Anyway, I sang the song at uh, this talent quest and I won the encouragement award at the talent quest. It was a big deal to me. I was only, you know, 13 years of age by then. And I was put into the grand final of this talent quest, which was a, t a Tasmanian, just, just a, a, national, uh, a national, no, a local thing, sorry. Anyway, I sing, uh, I sing a song at the uh, grand final of the Talent Quest. I'm the last act on stage, Act 25. It's way past my bedtime. I should have been in bed. I get on there, and there's 2,000 people in the auditorium. And, and the, the atmosphere was charged, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I was so nervous. I sang, Chris, I sang Michael Jackson's song called Ben, which is a love song about a rat. <laughs> hey, it's Michael Jackson. Anyway, the song was great. And uh, I sang the song, and it went down an absolute storm. I couldn't believe it. Everyone was screaming, and I thought, oh, I could get a load of this. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I won the talent quest. Everybody say, yay. I won the talent quest. And little did I know that there was a judge at the talent quest who was a producer of this show called Young Talent Time. Anyway. On the Monday morning, there's my muggin. My face is on, on the, the front page of the papers. This young boy, he, he wins the talent quest. And uh, I thought, wow, this is completely weird. That week, we get a phone call from the producers in Melbourne, Australia, um, that they want me to fly in and audition for my favorite kids show, Young Talent Time. I mean, Danny Minogue worked on that show. Uh, Kylie Minogue would come on as a guest, you know, some of the neighbors crew. Uh, there was a girl called Tina Arena. Do you remember Tina Arena, anybody? She an amazing voice. She, she was like a, a household name in Australia. And like all the greats for me were on that show. And anyway, we get this phone call. Uh, at our house, will you fly in and audition for this kid's show? They'd never had a Tasmanian on, on the show before. So it was a kind of a big deal <laughs> for us anyway. We fly in, my mum, mum and I fly in, we're picked up at the airport in a limo. Wow. First limo I'd ever been in. We were ushered and driven straight down to the head offices of Young Talent Time. 
and we were, we, were, we were sent into this room, and there is the director and the producer who was the judge, Greg Mills, he's standing there, and then it was like Jesus in the flesh. It's Johnny Young, the producer and creator of the show. And I walked in, and I just started shaking. I, I, I needed the loo. I was going to wet myself. I'm, I'm like, whoa, Johnny, I've watched you for years, and you're standing right in front of me. Have you ever had one of those moments? Maybe not, but... <laughs> So I'm, I'm stood there, and they said, okay, sing uh, Ben. And so I, they started up the music on the backing track, and I started to sing. And they stopped me halfway through, and I thought I'd done something wrong. I'm like, oh, did, did I get the words? Did I get the words wrong like I did this morning? Um, and they said, Mark, brilliant. We want you to be on the show. What do you think, Mrs. Stevens? And my mum, Sandra, she said... Um, well, that needs a, a bit of a conversation with my hubby. Uh, we're gonna have to, I'm going to have to fly back and, and uh, we'll chat about this. And I'm like, come on, mom, just say yes, just say yes. Anyway, we, we fly back and I'm trying to, you know, say to mom, come on, we're going to do this, aren't we? And she's like, honey, it's a big move. It means we're, we're going to have to, you know, move all, get uh, Brett out of school, Emma out of school, you out of school. You know, Nan, uh, my grandfather just passed away, so Nan was living with us. And her cat and her dog, and it, it, was, it meant a lot to move. Anyway, there were some pretty heated conversations going on when we got back home. Um, and as it was, mum and dad said yes to the chance of a lifetime. So we moved all the way from Glenorchy or Hobart, Tasmania, all the way to the Big Smoke, to Melbourne. Wow. For the, the opportunity of a lifetime to work on young talent time. And there I was. For three and a half years, I, I worked on one of Australia's most iconic shows. It was on, on telly for about 20 years. It had a viewing audience of 1.5 million people every Saturday night, which is huge for Australia with only 20 million people in it. So one in 20 people used to watch it uh, every Saturday night. And there I am singing and dancing and trying to do my best. I can't dance still, but I did my best anyway. Week in, week out, I was on that show. At times, we couldn't even walk down the street because we'd get chased by girls, which I loved. And uh, as, a, as a young boy, I thought I was, you know, I thought I was so cool. Anyway, and um, you used to do national tours, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, Darwin, Hobart. We'd do shows back to back six, seven nights a week with 10,000 people in the audience. So, you know, 70,000 people in one city, then we'd be off to the next city. It was huge. It was like, kind of like the X Factor here. But So we, I did that three and a half years, started to get itchy feet. I'm like, okay, I've had enough of this now. I want to move on. So I got myself an agent thinking she would help me with my singing career, and she got me an acting audition for Neighbours. Now, I'd never acted before. I don't profess to be an actor at all. Wasn't a very good actor, as most of them aren't. And uh, sorry, don't tell them I said that. Oh, I could get into a lot of trouble for saying that. I'm just kidding. You, you know that. Um, anyway, so I, I did this audition for the character of Nick Page, a graffiti artist, uh, a painter graffiti artist who had gone through a lot of heartache in, uh, in his life. That's the character's story. Anyway, so I auditioned for this this guy, Nick Page, against 43 or 44 other young uh, actors in Australia. And I won the part. I could not believe it. So that catapulted me out of Young Talent Time into working on an even bigger show with a, with a world-viewing audience of around about 20 million people. Um, I auditioned for Neighbours. I got to work on Neighbours at a time when the show was at its pinnacle. I was working with, uh, with Anne Hattie, who did Helen, with Ian Smith, who did, who did Harold, you know, with, with Anne Charleston, who did Madge, obviously Jason, who did his Scott and Kylie, and, and all uh, Craig McLaughlin, who did Henry and Bronwyn, and he didn't do Bronwyn, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, and it was just fantastic. I knew some of the Neighbours crew because when I worked on Young Talent Time, they were just in the next studio over. So as we'd be taking a break on Saturday filming, you know, there would be Craig McLaughlin walking and we'd say, hey, dude, how you doing? He's like, hey, mate, how are you? And he would come on Young Talent Time tours, as would Kylie, and they'd come on as guests on the show. So we kind of knew each other. It felt a little bit like family to me. 
hey, I got to work with Guy Pierce for two years, who's a huge star now in America. He's an amazing guy. And we were good friends for, for a time. But it was such a, a great experience. On the flip side of that, all of that experience, I always had a curiosity for getting drunk or for, tr for trying drugs. Now, drink, drink was around me all the time as, as a young boy, uh, as w were drugs. My, my uncles used to smoke dope and all that kind of stuff. So I, I kind of, uh, the door had been open in my mind. So when we moved to Melbourne, Australia, and I was on the telly, and I was earning more money than my dad could earn in a week, and I was touring all around Australia, away from my parents, because only the girls' mothers would go on the tours with them, not the boys' mothers. And we were like, yeah. The five guys were like, yeah, away from mum and dad. Well, well, as we'd be touring and we'd come back and we'd bring girls into our room and, and uh, do crazy stuff as, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old boys, um, I would be the one who'd open the drinks cabinet in the room and start drinking alcohol. And I got so drunk one night that I couldn't do a show the next day. I was so hungover and I was, I was vomiting and I was a sorry sight. Um, and because of that little, uh, <coughs> little escapade, the boys' mothers were invited on all the tours. So all the mums were like, yay, Mark, um, you, you've caused us to come on the tours. Well done, son. And that was the kind of mindset. You've got to know what the entertainment industry is like. It's a different world to the church. It really is. All you need to do is f read the papers and flick on the telly to see what's going on. And I think we're pretty aware of that now, aren't we? Particularly mums and dads. So I'm in that kind of whole world. Well, by the time I got to Neighbours, I'd already, you know, I was already out partying at clubs and being invited into places as a, as a young guy, as were the others uh, on the show. You know, we were, we were ushered in the back door at clubs. So by the time I got to Neighbours and I was earning thousands a week, um, I, I was fully immersed in the whole club and pub scene. And I would be out, you know, three and four nights a week after I do my day of filming. And I'd be out with certain members of the show who I won't mention who, who liked other drugs, who were into putting cocaine up their nose and dropping a hit of ecstasy or smoking dope and, were, you know, drinking just went with the, with the whole thing. That was just something you did. So my lifestyle was becoming a little bit crazy behind the scenes. I was trying to hide it from my mum and dad, although they knew what was kind of going on in terms of me partying. They didn't know the drug thing. But there was a lot of turbulence at home as well at, at that stage in our family. My little sister had made accusations that my father had sexually abused her for seven years and it had destroyed the trust of the family, well, the little trust that was left. And I started to view my dad with great suspicion because I knew that he was sleeping around anyway behind my mum's back and would tell us about that. And I, it, it just really started to destroy our relationship as a family. Uh, my brother was going through turbulent, a turbulent time in his marriage and, and all this stuff was happening while I'm working on national television. My dad's being dragged in to, to, uh, to speak to the police and everything's hush-hush and it could have gone to the papers, but for some reason God protected our family from all of that. I now understand that. But so that, that was all this turbulence and heartache and, and, and sorrow and me dabbling in this and dabbling in that was, was a part of what was going on in our life. Um, when I was 19, I got a phone call from my agent and she said, hey, a lot of the neighbors crew are doing these things called pantomimes in the UK. Would you like to do one? And I, and I said, oh, not really. I, I don't really want to do it. I don't know. What, what's it all about? She said, well, you get paid about four and a half, five thousand pounds a week. I said, I'll do it. <laughs> anyway, so I, I fly from Melbourne, Australia, and I fly into, uh, into Manchester, UK, and I start working at the Davenport Theatre in Stockport with a person called Danny LaRue. And we all know Danny LaRue. A lot of us do, you know, the the, the, one of the most famous drag queens on the planet. And he played my mother <laughs> in, the show, in a show called Aladdin. So I fly in and I do this Christmas show with Danny 
and uh, and with uh, Rachel Friend who did Bronwyn from Neighbours, uh, and the three of us were kind of you know the the stars of the thing, and and we're earning shed loads of money. Now Danny liked his champagne, so by the evening concert or the performance, Danny would be rocking, and uh, and so would I. We'd be rocking and we'd be pretty much drunk on champagne, and then I'd go out and party uh, behind the scenes and. My life just started to get very, very crazy, ladies and gentlemen. I started to realize, uh, being so naive, I started to realize that not everyone that gets around you loves you for you. But in the UK, in the scene that I was involved in, people get around you because they want something from you. And a lot of people started to crowd around my life, uh, whispering in my ear or would hang out with me just because I had a lot of money or because I was, you know, riding the crest of a wave in terms of fame at that time. And, you know, I was allowed into parties. I was rubbing shoulders with people like Mick Hucknall and, and uh, with, with uh, Elton John and George Michael, just to name a few of, of the people that I was partying with at, at that time, as well as some of the Neighbours crew. And we were living life at a level that, that was pretty much mind-boggling for a young Aussie kid. So things started to speed up in my life at that stage. I'm 19. I'm 12,000 miles away from my mum and dad and love being away because of all the turmoil that was happening in our life. I just wanted to be away from it as far as I could. Couldn't deal with it. And I would fly a few of my friends in from Australia to stay with me from weeks on end. When the panto came to an end, I moved into London and, and uh, I signed a record deal with BMG RCA and Simon Cowell was working BMG at that time and um, I was managed by Kenny Smith who managed the Eurythmics and, and London Beat and uh, I started to record my music and, and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to be world famous now and, and wow, we're going to absolutely go for it. Um, but again, those people who crowded around me, including friends who I'd flown in, were starting to dominate my world more than my career. The party life was taking a front seat and my other life, my career, was taking a back seat. I would be partying day in, day out, drinking as much alcohol as I could, putting as much cocaine up my nose as I could, taking as many ecstasy pills as I could, dropping hits of acid and, and just going out and partying and doing crazy stuff. When you're earning a lot of money, it goes from buying one gram of cocaine to 10 grams. It goes from buying one ecstasy pill to, to 50, a bag of 50 and offering them as hors d'oeuvres at parties. It was that kind of, uh, of thing that was going on in my life. So I'm trying to get this record thing together and I'm working with Nick Kershaw who wrote and produced my first song. I'm touring with Take That, I'm touring with Chesney Hawks, the one-hit wonder, and uh, I'm touring with Sonia, and, uh, you know, I'm on the road show, uh, the Philip Schofield Radio 1 road shows, and I'm touring with E17 and all those people, uh, most of which were, were just as messed up as me. Hey, I nearly had a fight with Robbie Williams one night. I got so drunk, and he got so drunk, and uh, we're on the tour together. And he goes, you neighbors people, all you want to do is kind of milk it, don't you? You want to just come over here and record your records and ah, you're a plonker and you're an expletive, you're an expletive, an expletive. And I said, mate, don't you mess with it. And I went at him in this party and then my manager jumped on me. His manager jumps up, we're going to fight Steve. we're going to punch each other's head. That was the last time I really saw Robbie. <laughs> Funny. I was a feisty little character. I was, I was a silly, silly young man. So you get a kind of a picture of what's going on in my life. I was going to release a single called Broken English, which was Mary Ann Faithful's song that she made famous. And the, the, the Gulf War was going on at the, that time, so we couldn't get any radio play. So I worked with Nick Kershaw and I, I recorded a song called This Is The Way To Heaven. Kind of a prophetic song for me. Uh, we released it. It went okay, but I didn't have anything to follow it up. As I said, my lifestyle was so out of whack that things were falling apart in my life. This is when things started to go horribly wrong for me. Um, because my drug taking started to go to a new level, I would turn up to sessions to sing and I couldn't sing. I'd been up all night partying. Or I would turn up to photo shoots and I'd be vomiting in a side room 
because of the, the, the drugs. And then I, I would go to a side room and I'd, I'd put something up my nose and I'd, I'd, I'd walk out and I'd be okay for half an hour and then I'd need to go back in the side room and, 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 uh, and get, get a hit. To, to function. People started to see all the flaws and, and started to see it, so they backed off. My manager dropped me. Kenny Smith, he said, enough is enough. BMG dropped me. So my career was starting to fall apart. And then I moved back to Australia. I was managed by a guy called Glenn Wheatley out there who managed John Farnham, who's a, who's a big star in Australia. He dropped me. So I was dropped as cold as a stone. And all of my life started to fall apart. I ended up uh, spending everything I had on, on the party life. And I ended up moving back in with my parents in Melbourne. And I would work in cover bands around Australia, singing other people's songs, getting up. And I'd just be totally trashed all of the time. You know, earning, earning money was all about just getting more money for drugs. I was sleeping around with anyone and anything at that stage. Uh, just so that I could get more drugs, uh, just so that I could dull the pain of, of rejection, of bitterness, of heartache, of sorrow, of my life starting to fall apart. But all I wanted to do was cloud my mind out with more drugs. I would, I would remember my sister and all the things that she's gone through and I would go back to my family and it, w it would just be a reminder of things that, that, you know, that I, d I wanted to be away from. As it was, my mum and dad moved back to Tasmania, Australia, and we moved back with them. So I'm back in my homeland. My career has fallen apart. My life is broken. My career is not there anymore. I'm back in Tasmania where it all started. Again, I got a job with a little cover band, a little three-piece, and we'd be doing gigs in front of 10 and 12 and 15 people. I'd be falling off the stage. I'd be a sorry sight. And uh, I just couldn't get my life together. My brother said, enough is enough. We're going to move back to England. You're coming with me. He sold his car. We got flights. We moved back. We were out of there. I tried to get my career back together uh, in the UK. It didn't work at all because drugs had just had a grip on me. Brett, my brother said, I'm out of here, Mark. I'm, I'm going back to Tasmania. I can't see you destroy yourself, brother. I've got to go. And he moved back to Tasmania and left me. There I am all by myself. I'm living with a lady that, I, that used to work for me, for my management company. We're living together. And uh, she was a good friend of ours, but she was as messed up, if not more, than me. One night, I'm out, of the, out at the pub. My day consisted of waking up at about 2 o'clock, going to the pub and just drinking my life away. Uh, and then my friend would lend me money to buy drugs uh, if she could afford it, and, and that was my kind of pattern in the day. Anyway, I go to the pub. Um, I'm, I'm just, you know, drinking away my, my, my sorrows and, and questioning my life. And then uh, I'm at a club one evening, and this, this beautiful angelic creature, <laughs> this lady is, is at the other end of the the room and she walks over to me and she introduces herself to me and she goes, uh, hi, my name's Lucinda Webb. And I said, well, hi, my name's Mark. She goes, I used to watch you on television when you were a kid uh, on Young Talent Time and Neighbours. What on earth are you doing here? I was in this dark, dingy little club and I said to her, me, what, am, what are you doing here? She said, well, I'm overworking for Michael Barrymore. And I said, oh, fantastic, great. Well, it's good to meet you. Anyway, as it was, we started to date each other and became really close. And just like everyone else in my world, I messed her around. Uh, and we broke up. But she went back to church because she was a Christian, a backslidden Christian. She goes back to church and starts praying for me. And who knows? Prayer has power. So she's back at church. I don't even know that she's gone back. And she starts praying for me. Now, she stayed a friend in my life. She did not abandon me after we broke up. And she would come and visit me at the pub every now and then and, and invite me to parties, uh, all of which I, I never turned uh, up at. She stayed a friend. Anyway, as she was praying, strange things started to happen to me, people. I started to get a, a, an empathy and a compassion for people beyond anything I'd ever felt before. And I'd want to speak to people about their life. Normally, I was so self 
indulgent and just focused on me and my next hit and who could give me what and who could I sleep with to get more drugs, man or a woman. It didn't matter. That's how messed up I was. I was desperate for drugs. That started to shift and I got a real passion for people and I would talk to them about their life. And I remember this lady at the pub. She invited, she just lost a husband. She was an alcoholic. She invited me down to the, the graveyard. To, and I remember standing in front of a grave with her husband's name on it and the date of his birth and the date of his death and in the middle a dash. And I looked at the dash and I, I, I thought, and I thought to myself, what did he do with his dash? And it, 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 it just, it just hit me in my spirit. And I felt something say to me, what are you going to do with your dash? And I just needed to get away. I, I, I remember walking away from the, from the graveyard. I left her there crying. And I, I walked away. I just couldn't deal with that thought. Then I, I, uh, I get this phone call out of the blue from my mother who said, Mark, it's Easter. I want you to go to church. Please, son, I'm worried about you. Can you go to church? And I said, yeah, 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 mum, whatever, yeah, yeah, okay. I said, I'll go just to get her off the phone. That thought would not leave me. I had to go to church. I said to the lady I was living with, you need to drive me to church. She said, you what? I said, yeah, you need to get me up to the old church and uh, where they ring the bell. And uh, I've just got to go in there for a minute. I have to do this. She said, oh, my God, you've lost it. So she drove me up. I sat in church. This warm glow came all over me, people, as I sat in the pew. And I listened to these people sing Kumbaya in the corner or whatever song they were singing in fluffy jumpers. And they're down there and they're singing and singing. And, and I just I felt peace for the first time in my life in many, many years. Anyway, I hear the car horn. Beep, beep, beep. Oh, oh I'd forgotten about uh, Heather who was out, outside. I ran out. She's like, what are you doing? And I went, oh, I just had a weird experience. Oh, don't worry. Let's just go to the pub. So we went to the pub and back I am in my, in, back in my, my, my flow. Ten more minutes, five more minutes. Anyway, I'm walking down the street one evening on my way to the, to the pub. And I bump into a priest. And he goes, oh, hello, how are you, young man? I went, uh, hi, how you doing? He goes, I'm doing well. And I said, can I ask you a question? He goes, absolutely. I said, there must be more to life than getting a job, getting married and having a few kids and living a good life. There must be more to life. And he goes, oh, there's so much more. And I went, well, what is the more? He goes, that's what you need to find out. And he walked away from me. I couldn't believe it. And I ran up to the pub and I'm asking my mates and saying, dude, do you know what this more is that this priest told me about? And they had no clue. The last little scenario that happened, as obviously Lucinda's praying for me, was I'm down on the Kilburn High Road in London. I'm at a fruit shop. For some reason, I had to wash my apple. And I'm like, it's dirty. I just need to wash my... I'd never done that before. I didn't know why I needed to do that. But it just sits in my mind. And I walked into the kitchen. And uh, the, then the guy's like, what are you doing in my kitchen? Get out. And he kicked me out of the shop. And I'm rubbing my apple. And I'm biting the apple. As soon as I looked at everyone outside... The discerning of spirits came on me. I knew every infirmity that was in every person on the street. I knew their thoughts. I knew the hatred. I knew the bitterness of soul in them. I knew what they were broken about. It's like the Holy Spirit lifted a veil. And I, but I didn't know what was going on. I'm saying to my friend, look at these people. Look at the, they're broken. Do you? He goes, mate, you've absolutely lost it. Let's just go to the pub. We went to the pub that night. This friend of mine took me back to his apartment and he did heroin in front of me. And he offered it to me. And I said, I don't do needles. And he, he said, no, you can smoke it. And I could just think of the devil wringing his hands like, oh, I've got this boy now. And he offered it to me and he said, you can chase the dragon. So, so what I did was chase the dragon and I smoked heroin. And then my life stooped to an all-time low where I was selling stolen CDs to cash converters to support a drug habit, earning 30 or 40 pounds a day to support, to buy heroin. When I couldn't afford heroin, I would drink cough mixture just to put myself to sleep. That's how low I stooped. Until that night when I was invited to the party and we turn up to that door and knock, we get invited in, and my drug dealer and his friend get kicked out. I get collared. 
pressed up against the wall. I, I slide down and say, I think I need God. I think I need God. All these little things were happening in my world. I'd come to the end of my road, people. But the beginning of a new road. Lucinda said to me, Mark, don't go back to the apartment you're in. It's a hovel. It's horrible. I don't think I'll ever see you again if you go. I said, oh, you know, don't be a drama queen. She said, no, Mark, stay the night here. She was really strong with me. I'm like, whoa. So I stayed the night. I slept in her bed next to her. Nothing happened. <laughs> but I slept in her bed next to her. And I woke up four hours later, really sick, shaking, sweating, thought I was going to die. And I started vomiting up bile and vomiting. Oh, I, do, I, was, I was so sick. I said, Lucinda, take me to the hospital quick. I think I'm going to die. She said, no, you're going to be fine. I remember her wiping down all the sick off me and wiping down the sweat. And she was pacing the room, reading out of this book. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Maketh me to lie down in green pastures. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be? For when the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh. And she was reading. And then she'd go, And I'm like, whoa, what's, what's this? And I felt this weird presence in the room. And I'm like, peace, peace that surpasses understanding was, was in the room. And I'm like, well, this is too weird. This is too weird. All of a sudden, the glory of the Lord filled that bedroom. On the 26th of August, 1996, my life was absolutely shaken in a way that I will never, ever, ever forget, ladies and gentlemen. The glory of the Lord filled the room. I remember I had my legs in my arms and I started to call out to God, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, forgive me. Oh, forgive me. As this presence took my breath away. That's the best way I can explain it. It was just incredible. And I'm saying, I'm so, and I realized that he'd seen me as a little boy get my first bike. I realized that he'd seen my 13th birthday party. He'd seen the good. He'd seen the bad. He'd seen me in the toilet putting coke up my nose. He'd seen me in bed with this person and that person. He'd seen it all. Yet he still loved me. And his grace had arrived. The power of his presence had, had, was impacting me that morning, the 26th of August, 96. And I gave my heart to Jesus in someone's bedroom, not in a church. In my ex-girlfriend's bedroom, she rejoiced and I rejoiced. And all the angels of heaven rejoiced as a son came home. Woo! Oh! Hallelujah! I know I'm nearly over time, but I'll finish in a sec. Out of that, three days later, I didn't have anything. I had nothing, no career. I had no clothes, only the clothes I'd vomited on. I didn't have any money in my pocket. All I had was debt and a, and a, and a messed up life. But this girl had come into my life that God had used to be an instrument to help me get saved, to love me, to stand with me. She took me down to meet the pastors of guess what church? Hillsong Church. That was her church. She took me down to meet the pastors of the church. The evangelist pastor, Steve Mayle, mighty man of God, prayed for me. And I got slain in the spirit twice in his office. And he prophesied over my life. I'm like, what is this? I've never been this high before. And uh, I remember this... The second, before, the, before he prayed for me the second time, he burst out of his office and he said, Mark, God has told me to pray for your blood. I had this fear that I had AIDS. I had this fear that I had, a, you know, a disease. I never wanted to go to the doctors to find out. He prayed for me and I felt, a ch I heard a chain break above my head, like a supernatural sound. Um, and I knew that I was free of my fears. All, uh, all the rashes over my body that drugs had caused they disappeared in it like the dermatitis in a second. It was gone. I just walked out a completely different person out of that office that day with Lucinda. She was there. She saw it all. She could testify to the whole thing. My life was transformed. I became a part of Hillsong Church in London for a whole year. Three months in, I start singing songs for God under the power of the anointing of God. And I knew why God had given me a gift. I knew why God had given me what I have. And it was to bless him and lead people to know him in praise and worship. Can I get an amen? So I moved then to Sydney to go to the Hillsong Conference. I could only afford a one-way ticket. 
But I stayed at Hillsong Sydney for three and a half years. And I toured all around the world singing praises for Jesus alongside Brian Houston and Darlene Check and, and amazing people. And I thank God for the revival that I was a part of there. It got on me. I will desperately want to see it here. Anyways, that was the place, the crucible. That was the learning ground for me, ladies and gentlemen, of how to flow in the power of God. And that was where I met my wife, who's a Yorkshire lass. Her dad, one of the greatest preachers on the planet, Mr. Paul Scanlon. He's preaching at the Hillsong Conference. God is speaking right at me. I knew he was going to be my father-in-law because I was dating Beth at that time. When she stayed for a couple of months in Sydney for year one and year two, we fell in love with each other. And I'm listening to this man and the Holy Spirit said, that's your father-in-law. And I'm like, oh my God, God is so good. Caused me to move 12,000 miles away again to Yorkshire, to Bradford from Sydney, to plant myself in a church. Worked at Abbey National. Then I got a job on staff where I was a worship pastor for nearly 12 years. Anyway. Cut a long story short, God has been good and God is faithful and God has saved me and God has rescued me. Hallelujah and hallelujah. I'm going to hand over to Pastor Jared. Thank you so much for having me, Pastor Vicky and Jared. I love you and I've just had a great, great weekend with you. I honor you. This is an awesome couple, ladies and gentlemen. They are, they are fantastic and uh, I honor you in front of your church today. Thank you so much.